Hey, it's Greg. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast for Wednesday, April the 20th. We have a lot on the show this morning, uh, that's for sure. She and I talk about Johnny Depp and the testimony. We were kind of riveted by it yesterday. This was a massive A-list. Pay him $20 million a movie, and he'll make your movie $200 million star. And um, and it's all changed for him. An abusive relationship seemingly on both sides. It's not an excuse, but it's an explanation. And his testimony yesterday got some people talking about, is there a comeback? Is there a possibility that he walks his way back into big movies again? We'll talk about it um, and uh, so much more on the show. We're glad you're with us. Toronto Today begins now. Great to have you here. Uh, let me start with this. Uh, I see this headline yesterday, and I will get to the headline. But By the way, lovely exchange about masks and choice last night. I go to get my hair cut. And uh, it needed to be done. You know, there were some silver hairs in there. I said, can you just leave the brown ones and take the silver ones out? I don't want to look like other morning radio hosts who look like way older than their age. I want to stay eight, nine. You think I'd give you names? Are you kidding? I could. Eight, nine years. I want to look eight, nine years younger than my actual age. That's fine. So I go get rid of the silvers. She's wearing a mask. She finished cutting somebody's hair with a mask on, I say. And it's this sort of awkward, like, we're almost like 20 years old again. Do you have protection? Yes. Do you also? Oh, my God. It's a haircut. Um, but I did say, I go, do you want me to have a mask on? She's like, no, but I'm going to wear one if that's okay with you. I just came back from New Brunswick. I'm like, absolutely. We had a great chat about COVID and we talked because <laughs> there are those things. And we talked about the randomness of it. because We talked about households where people have gotten it and then nobody else gets it. Households where two people get it and the other two people don't get it. And we've tended to blame, oh my gosh, the blame. I even when I think about that word from, you know, from for time immemorial forward, when I think about the word blame, I'll think about these last two years. I'll think blame and I'll think shame. I'll hear Millie Vanilli's blame it on the rain on the radio, and I'll think about the COVID nineteen era. I hate that. Not the song. But uh, but I, I, I had a lovely conversation about sort of the randomness of it. People think, well, some stranger gave it to me at the grocery store. Or I saw this yesterday. I went to a concert and didn't wear a mask and I got it. And my friend wore a mask and he didn't get it. So there. And I'm like, okay, we can play this causation correlation game all you want. I mean, if someone brings it into your house and it's everywhere and you can't exactly an airborne virus, you're sharing the same kitchen area. Oh, well, I'm going to wait 10 minutes until they uh, leave the kitchen and then I'll go in. That doesn't work. It's going to work or it's not going to. So I see this headline. Yeah, it was just a lovely, nuanced, balanced conversation. It gave me faith about how much forward we're, we're moving here. And it, uh, it wasn't stoked with uh, fear and it wasn't stoked with the, uh, the presence of you know, I said, we both agreed like 26 months of constantly being alarmed and being in a state of panic and thinking it's last year at this time or God forbid, 18 months ago at this time. It's not very healthy. So enough's enough. It's staying. It's here. COVID is airborne. Yeah, I know. I probably knew it before you did. And most of our listeners did also. Thanks. You keep you keep hashtagging that all you want. It's great that you're here. On the, and Oh, by the way, we can't eliminate the virus also. We can't eradicate it from planet Earth or planet Mars or Venus. The headline in the Hamilton Spectator yesterday, and this is a real headline. Kids with COVID, kids with COVID flock to ER at McMaster Children's Hospital. 
And I'm like, oh, I don't like the sound of that. I don't, I don't want kids flocking to any hospital. That's not great. And I won't mention the reporter, but it's a, again, it's the Hamilton paper. I'm not here to, to, uh, to dig, dig deep on, on uh, laziness. Okay, uh, you know, I like a good, uh, I like a good time on the couch. But when I'm, when I'm here, bring some energy, bring some intensity. Bill, be well researched. You're gonna get, you're gonna get stuff wrong, and say when you get stuff wrong. But um, here's the here's the story. I'll give you the headline again. Kids with COVID flock to ER at McMaster Children's. You know, they're flocking. Have you ever flocked somewhere? That that seems to me that's that's a lot of birds that go somewhere in a hurry, and there's a huge crowd of birds, and they're all and you don't want to go near them. You've hit your golf ball near a bunch of Canada geese, and you're like, you guys keep that one. I'll use another one. So that's a flock to me at McMaster Children's Hospital. Hamilton Hospital saw nearly eight eight kids a day with COVID in January and February alone. Eight kids. Okay. All right. Eight kids, I guess, is a is a flaw. You could almost field a soccer team with eight kids. Here's the uh, story itself. The sixth wave is hitting McMaster Children's Hospital with high numbers of kids coming to the emergency department with COVID. All right. I, I'm, I'm listening. You got my attention. And I want to know what's happening here. Okay. Let's, let's find out. Let's find out. Dr. Angelo Microgianicus, okay, chief of pediatrics. His quote, and it's four paragraphs. I didn't have to look very far. Four paragraphs in. And by the way, then I'm not worried. I'm not worried about the flocking. I'm not worried about the ER. I'm not worried that this is some kind of, that we're missing something. Are we not getting something right? Here's the sentence. This is first quote in the story. There are more kids that are unwell, but not so sick that they're needing to come into hospital and be admitted. If you look at our hospital admissions, they're about the same as they have been throughout the COVID pandemic. When are we going to get this right? When are we going to when are we going to do better? I don't even know this is about being better. Can we do this better? Can we not be so alarmist and panicky? Can we do that at some point in time? It's in the story. So far, the surge has not resulted in more kids being admitted to the hospital for COVID. But I thought they were flocking. Here's the problem we see here. They are coming to the hospital. One doctor, I mentioned this on on uh, on Twitter yesterday, and a doctor reached out to me and he said, "I know what's going on, and you know what's going on too." And he, it was a little bit of a test game here. Okay, this isn't somebody we even have on all that frequently, but but he said, "You can figure this out." How easy is it to get a GP appointment right now? And I thought about it, and I'm like, "It's not very easy right now." That doctor is correct. It's not very easy to get an appointment. My wife needed a like like she had an earache it really bothered her for a little while it's gone now everything's fine but she had a zoom call our, our doctor's great but i think this was in december or january and our doctor wasn't seeing patients in person you needed to have a pretty damn good reason to go in in person maybe you had to fight and claw and scratch and insist on going in in person okay so she's she gets she says i got an earache and they're giving her like a diagnosis over Zoom for an earache. You know what? You know what happens. You know how impossible it is to examine an ear over a computer screen. What do you do? Hold it up to the screen, get it right at, to that webcam, that little webcam on your laptop, as quickly as you can. So here's the issue: many primary care physicians. It's a huge pain in the ass to get in and see them right now. Right? Check. Check. Walk-in clinic hours. I did a walk-in clinic. What, two weeks ago? Two weeks ago on a Monday? It was the Monday of the National Championship game. Walk-in clinic hours often take longer than the emergency room itself. 
How many times have you picked the ER over a walk-in? You'll get seen faster. You might even get seen by people who can, you know, make a move in a, in a big hurry. When I've had sort of chest pains or something else, or I've drank too much coffee or whatever, I've chosen the ER a couple different times on my own. You call home, you're like, I'm going to be four or five hours, but it's going to be faster than a walk-in. So you make the ER your first choice. Doesn't seem that difficult to understand. We would never do a story. I hope. Oh my God, I can't put anything past the COVID stories we would or wouldn't. I can't put anything past us in the me. I can't anymore. Okay? We'd never do a story about an uptick in general practitioner doctor visits. Ever. We might talk about a lack of availability. We might do that. But I'm going to go double back to the kids with COVID. Flock to ER at McMaster Children's Hospital. Come on. Come on. Got to be a little bit better than that. I asked Dr. Zane Chaglow, who is in Hamilton, who works in infectious diseases, about what we need to reframe better. I asked him this on the show yesterday, and I'm like, then this headline pops up two hours later. They didn't listen to the segment. Here's our conversation. Who can reframe what we're doing in the media? How do we talk this better? How do we line up? Tell us what to do better and differently. I I think we can handle some constructive criticism. I hope we can. Yeah, I mean, I think again, let's let's focus on things that work, the things that have very high yield that will significantly change our prognosis from this over the coming weeks and months. So, you know, therapeutics, vaccines, healthcare capacity, making sure that we can deal with surges, whether they be COVID or non-COVID illnesses that are coming back, long-term investments into, you know, vulnerable settings like long-term care. Yes, improving ventilation in high-risk settings mm-hmm. so that we, we use every tool available. Because those things will continue to work. They'll continue to protect our population. And they're, you know, as long as you can get people to, to engage with them once, they're going to have effects that last past that event. But when we're arguing about, you know, you know how many rapid tests you have to do, you know, should you wear a mask or should you not wear a mask, uh, and should we mandate it? You know, capacity limits in, in establishment X or Y. You know, all of those things are fraught with behavioral issues. They're fraught with people that, you know, again, two years ago, were very afraid of this virus. Two years later, who have gotten the virus and gotten all the doses of vaccines are not necessarily prioritizing in their values and beliefs, not mm-hmm. gathering with individuals uh, or not going to that big Raptors game tomorrow night. You know, I think we have to start thinking Again, what are the high-yield things, and how can we reinforce this so that the population benefits? Yeah, don't know what else to say than that. Um, We've got a lot of stuff wrong. We're trying to correct it, but he's right. We're picking all the wrong battles here, and we this story is not properly framed. Parents are choosing. It's it's your your fears are your fears. I never take that away from somebody. How you feel is how you feel. You don't have to make me feel what you feel, not after 26 months. But I've been there with a kid, a little toddler, a baby. My wife went away uh, one time on a Saturday, Sunday, actually, um, I think for a baby shower. And I started just like sweating out this fever that my oldest son had. Like I was panicked driving around on a Sunday. You know, you can't go. Like I don't I had never been to an emergency room. I didn't know where to go in uh, in Michigan. Uh, where I lived. I didn't know where, where the proper hospital was that I should go. But you you figure it out. You're sweating something out. You hope a fever breaks. You want to wish a terrible croup cough away. But given everything we know and everything we've been... Ro- parents are... What do you think they are? Less likely, equally likely, or more likely to rush their kids to the ER? 
at the first sign of symptoms like a wet cough, a runny nose, an achy body, a headache. I know more kids are getting sick right now. I'm sorry. I understand that they are. This is the way through this. We can't live the last next 26 months like the last 26 months. I won't do it. You probably won't do it either. And you shouldn't make anybody else make you do it. Plain and simple. Okay, so Stephen Del Duca, we see this yesterday. The Ontario Liberal leader says, I'm going to ban handguns. You elect me, you get, you make me your next premier, handguns will be banned. I don't think any expectation has been there for the Ford government to do that. But the great question is, what does that change? What, how, how is that viewed as an election issue? There have been countries that have really tightened up their gun laws. Um, it's well documented in the UK. And I remember this one really well. In the mid-90s, there was the Dunblane School Massacre. Um, and that happened in the in spring of 1996. And the UK really tightened things up. Now, they don't have a handgun ban in the United Kingdom. That's misunderstood. But it's incredibly difficult to get them. And they have banned semi-automatic and automatic weapons. That's a big distinction between a pistol that's not an automatic and uh, and handguns. So Stephen Del Duca made that distinction yesterday. Uh, I'm eager to bring on Tracy Wilson. She's vice president of public relations for the Canadian Coalition for Firearms Rights. And uh, she joins me right now. Thanks for making the time and coming on. The, you promoted the segment on the show yesterday. I appreciate that as well. Thanks for doing that. Hey, no problem, Greg. Thanks for the opportunity. What was your instantaneous reaction to the liberal leader saying, I, I want I want to ban handguns legally? Well, I kind of rolled my eyes because here's the problem. It's one thing to have a sound policy to combat street crime or, or gang crime that we see across our, our country and the cities. However, this only applies to legal handguns owned by licensed owners. And of course, all of these handguns are registered. So this isn't really a public safety measure. To me, this is sort of a, a political theater measure. It's ex- electioneering. And it was a little shocking to see a liberal provincial candidate um, advocating for American-style gun laws. Because, of course, as you know, in the U.S., the laws vary state by state. And we see how that works out for them. So, yeah, I, it's, it's shocking to me. I, I would rather see some credible measures to combat actual crime and violence. And I think if you talk to police officers, they do say, you know, we're able to get a lot of people that either have illegal guns or sell legal guns or traffic illegal guns, but the sentences are light. So it doesn't do very much. It's not really like sentencing is still a deterrent um, for, for concepts of crime and punishment. So they do all the investigating. They do the heavy lifting. They arrest people for having illegal guns or, or selling illegal guns. And there's not much of a there's not much of a deterrent in terms of a sentence. No, that's true. And the federal liberal government has also introduced C5, which is a bill that reduces the mandatory minimum penalties for some very serious gun crimes like smuggling and, of course, allows a judge to give a lighter sentence. So if the, if the, if the goal here is to reduce actual crime and violence and make safer communities, I have to wonder why the focus is on legal gun owners who are the people not committing the shootings at the same time they're lowering sentences 
for some very serious violent gun crimes. Are there programs that do work? If we, if I can make the case that we want responsible uh, gun ownership, and if you want to, you know, feel safe in your home, depending on where you live, that's fantastic. Are, are there programs? The federal government made a made a big uh, program in the se- second term for Justin Trudeau, in essence, to fund a buyback. Second year, I should say, to fund a buyback program. Do things like that work to get more guns off streets? Well, no, because those buybacks only apply to legally acquired firearms owned by licensed holders. None of those programs apply to the guns that are used in crimes. So that that buyback program for the last gun ban from 2020 has never materialized. I own guns that were banned in that ban. Mm-hmm. So if these guns are so dangerous, I'm being forced to keep it for three and a half years while they stumble around trying to figure out what to do. So, you know, rather than focusing on legal gun owners, using, you know, firearms at ranges, RCMP-approved RCMP ranges, I would rather see some investments in at-risk youth initiatives in some of the high-risk communities, more secure borders. We know that 0% of the rail cars coming across the American border into Canada, 0% are, um, are, are examined to see if there's anything being smuggled in on them. To me, that's a big problem. And then, of course, just better opportunities in some of these neighborhoods that are impacted by socioeconomic instabilities. So I think there's a lot of things we can do, and we should be trying all of that first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you kind of flood the zone with five or six different things. And to be honest, if three and a half or four of them work, then we have a safer environment. Then we have safer streets. Then then all that stuff ends up happening. I want to reset uh, who you are. Tracy Wilson is with us uh, from the Canadian Coalition for Firearms Rights. So I bring up the Dunblane shooting in Scotland, and they banned automatic and semi-automatic weapons. New Zealand did the same thing after the Christchurch shooting. Should we should we have a much, much stiffer regulation uh, for semi-automatic or automatic weapons? Like I said, that's not your that's not your regular pistol, which you might claim uh, could be used for, you know, a home invasion or self-defense in some scenario. Should we should we be banning a lot more automatic firearms than we have so far? Well, all automatic firearms are banned in Canada and they've been banned since 1977. So we're ahead of that already. Semi-automatics as well. No, semi-automatics are legal. I own some semi-automatics. Um, they are, of course, pinned to a maximum of five rounds for rifle, ten rounds for pistol. Once again, focusing on legal guns owned by licensed owners, that's not who's committing the, the shooting. In fact, there's some data that's come out of the Firearms Operations and Enforcement Support Unit, and it shows us that 84% of crime guns originated from the U.S., mm-hmm. So we have to remember these gun bans and buyback programs only apply to legal guns. Not one street gun will be taken out of the streets. We're talking about taking legal guns, <clears throat> excuse me, out of the out of the gun rooms and safes of licensed gun owners who've done nothing to warrant this. So I, I'm all about making a safer community. I'm a mom and a grandma, and I want a safer community too. But taking away my my guns isn't going to solve that. We've got to start focusing on root causes, at-risk youth initiatives, and the real causes of violence in our society. When, when a permit's given, help me out, when a permit's given out for a gun, rifle or a handgun, how often does it need to be renewed? And, and what are the what are sort of the safeguards that, that allow it to be renewed? Is, and is that done what, via email? Is that done, do you have to go in anywhere? What, how does someone renew a, a weapon? 
So every five years, we have to renew our license. Um, and of course, that entails filling, refilling out the application, providing references, providing the information about our spouses. There, there's a whole vetting system that goes on. But during that five years, every single day, our name is run through the Canadian Police Information Centre, which is an automated service that matches, runs my name and every gun owner's name through a computer and looks to see if I've had any police interactions or any problems in the last 24 hours. So every single day, we are getting a background check. Every single day. So what would stop what, if, if, I, if I had an assault conviction? Would I be stopped from buying a gun? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people with violent criminal paths are not able to acquire a firearms license. I think last year there was 3,600 applications in Canada that were refused for a license for a variety of reasons, but I would imagine some of those reasons would be that. So, yeah, you're held to a far higher standard than the average Canadian to own a firearm. Look, Canada has some of the most strictest and robust systems in the world. And for the most part, they work really well. Turning a blind eye to the actual problem of criminal street violence isn't going to make our our country, our communities, or our province safer. And I I would, you know, implore Del Duca to really think about this. This isn't, you know, this isn't theater. I know he might think it'll get him some votes, but he's talking about 650,000 legal gun owners in Ontario alone. Are there, uh, Tracy, are, are there rules in the States? Obviously it's in their constitution. It's, it's, there's constant, uh, there's a constant din politically. They're coming for your guns. They're trying to take your guns away. And, and you know, there's far more mass shootings. I mean, we, we just had the two year anniversary of what happened in, in, in Nova Scotia. It's terrible. It's terrible. That said, those were legal guns. There was a, uh, clearly a falling down in communicating with the public. There was a falling down in law enforcement, um, it, it was a it was very much a perfect storm. Are there things the United States does that you, as a you know, as self described responsible gun owner, go? We can't we can't become America about this stuff. We've got it. We've got to be a lot more responsible. And you'd make the case that we are. What would be those things? Yeah, I mean, I support the licensing system. Um, you know, some gun owners may not, but I do. I, I see when you see thousands of applications being refused each year. Um, then that shows to me that there's a level of vetting there, uh, you know, that goes into it to make sure that the people that are acquiring firearm licenses should have them. The, mm-hmm. the problem with that system too, as well, though, is we provide two references and these are character references who personally know you as a gun owner and less than 10% of those references are ever even called. There isn't resources to check up on gun owners references. Well, why not? Why not invest the money and making sure that the people with gun licenses are the people that should have them instead of doing something like this. The biggest mistake I see with this is, again, we are copycatting the Americans by doing this. This is absolutely American-style gun laws where they vary widely state by state. And it's, it's, we're, we're going down the same path that they're in. So I would, I would ask Del Duca to take a pause, take a real look at, at what's happening in the communities, what the sources of violence are, and focus on reducing that. 
And well, and, all- and you're right. And I'd make the case similar to I don't, cigarettes, anything. Isn't anybody just going to slip across the border in Windsor, go to Michigan? There's the potential there to buy a gun either on the black market or legally or go to Quebec and do it. There's no there's no check coming back from Ottawa uh, and, and Hull, Quebec. You could easily go to a, a neighboring province and buy a gun easily. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we just spoke about the Nova Scotia shooting. Mm-hmm. That guy went across the border and smuggled his firearms in. If you have criminal intent in your heart um, and, and you're looking to commit some violence, you're going to source those guns. You don't need a gun license yeah. or legal guns to do it. And, and that's where we should be focusing our resources, it is on, on stopping the flow of illicit guns and monitoring people who um, are obviously not stable and, of course, investing in our communities and in at-risk youth initiatives to keep kids out of gangs. This is what we should be doing. And, and the failure to do so um, can be measured, and it can be measured in human lives. Tracy Wilson uh, from uh, the Canadian Coalition for Firearms Rights. I enjoyed the discussion. I hope we get to talk again, Tracy. Thanks for making the time for our audience. Have a great day, Greg. Uh, Genevieve, thanks for the phone call. Go right ahead. I just wanted to commend the teacher on his courage for writing the email in the first place. And secondly, while maybe he could have chosen some of the words a little bit better. Think? Um, yeah, well. Like maybe know, even like, like telling your students that, that you could kill me by not wearing a mask properly? You think he could well, rephrase that a little know, bit? You're interrupting me now, and I haven't interrupted you. So you wanted to put me on, so here I am. No, anyway, I, I asked for clarification on the words that you would like him to correct. That's all. Well, Go right ahead. you got plenty of time. How else would you put the word kill? Because he was obviously charged by the factor the fear factor of perhaps dying and we don't know his circumstances and what's happened to him and as far as our little children go the parents should be asking them to wear a mask for their own safety regardless if it's doing harm or not okay we don't know for sure none of us know we don't know even know what the injection or the vaccines how they're working on us nobody knows so So, let me ask a question because we're having a conversation so so you would say that we need to do a, a lot more like the, the masks work. You don't have a doubt about that. But you have a lot of doubts about the vaccines and a lot of doubts about people's personal health and circumstances. But the masks, you know, work. So you want everybody wearing them. It's not a choice for you. For me, it's not a choice. All children should wear the mask. For how long? For as long as it takes. How long is that? We could go into another year. What are the metric? What are the metrics uh, via hospitalizations or ICU beds that you you would say? Well, now it's now it's safe to see faces again, and it's safe for kids who have speech therapy issues or socialization issues or anxiety issues to see each other's faces for thirty five hours a week in the classroom. Well, there's always going to be anxiety anxiety issues. We do have Zoom if we want to see each other. Oh, where okay. It's a, safe it's a safe platform. As far as our you know, our government and our health officials that we are supposed to trust in, they haven't always been the best guide. So I suggest that for most of us, because COVID is still alive and rampant in most places that I know, regardless of schools, so I'm just not connecting just totally with schools, I think we need to look at the big picture. And that is what is the cost of being safe and the cost of being safe. And it's my opinion. No, nobody else is that I know of, just mine, is that we need to wear a mask at least to give ourselves mm-hmm. some sort of protection. And if that includes our little ones, then that's 
I agree they should have masks on too. So as far as the teacher being reprimanded for this, that and the other, perhaps he could have chosen some kinder words. But at the same token, like I said earlier, we don't know the circumstances. The word kill, how do you, how do you say it nicely? Well, you, well you, don't, you don't say it to 15-year-olds to and put that burden of responsibility upon them that they might be murdering their educator. That would be my answer well, for that. You know what, though? We send our 15-year-olds to war. No, we don't. I mean, honestly, yeah, honest, Genevieve, like, uh, honestly, honestly, listen, listen, I got all day. You tell me You tell me when your cult meets on Sunday, I'll come, I'll do a talk. I'm happy to try and talk you down from this stuff. But we're, we're getting into bat crap craziness uh, by the end of that phone call. Everybody gets an opinion. You get to go even vote. Let's go to the phones. I'll get as many as I can before 830. Tanya, you're on uh, 640 Toronto. Thank you for waiting for, uh, through the break, Tanya. You're a teacher. By the way, thank you for that. And what would you like to say? Hi, good morning. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. And it's my pleasure to do what I do on a daily basis. What grade do you teach? I teach grade one. Awesome. Wow. Six-year-olds, man. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Yes. There's never a dull moment. Not, no, never. And and even before 2020, there wasn't. I know that. Yes. Um, I would say that if it were my opinion, uh, the children would be continuing to wear their masks. Um, I just feel that, and I've seen, that cases have skyrocketed. Yep. Even within my own school amongst the teachers, amongst the students, and the students are very much taking it home with them. Mm -hmm. It has also caused a great deal of disruption in terms of learning. I never know if I'm going to have a full class. And since the mask mandate was lifted, um, I often have five, six children away, which causes huge disruption to their learning because there's a lack of consistency. Once you get COVID, you are guaranteed off school for five days. And to get these little ones caught up um, is is a bit of a challenge. The biggest question I, I have, and I, I, I love you bring a lot of nuance and balance to the subject. I'd ask you this, and it's not an easy answer. And I'm not sure I have one, so I'm, I I don't want to frame it unfairly. When when, and I need almost a, a time of, of this year. When do we start taking responsibility for our own health? And that's mental, emotional, and physical, and 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 not transfer responsibility to other people. We've done a lot of that. We do need to look out for each other. And if I thought a cloth mask did that, and if I thought there was any hardcore evidence that did that, I'm all with you. But unless we suit them all up in N95s and and you can't even have eating and drinking at school because it defeats the entire purpose, same as this, this airline thing, then I think, I think it's redundant. And I think there's just too much of a risk benefit that goes the other way in terms of the lack of socialization and not being able to see faces that's harmful for five and six year olds. But that's me. Um, having been, having had direct contact with the children, we have been learning and fun, having learning and fun in grade one with math and without math. I don't feel that this has been a hindrance to the children's level of excitement for learning and for their ability to learn along the way. Um, When would you like the kid, when, when would you like them to take them off? If I could say, I also feel that the government dropped the ball in terms of the timing um, having the mask being lifted right after the March break has had an impact on cases. I just think that yeah. the rollout should have been done in a more thoughtful manner and that we would be seeing less cases to this point. When can, when can they take them off in school? When should they take them off in school? Yep. I feel that adults have uh, discretion in terms of 
you know, being able to have that option of wearing masks and when it's safe not to wear the mask. And I just don't think that children have that capability in terms of being thoughtful to say, oh, I'm in a crowded space right now. I should throw on my mask. And we are putting that responsibility on young children. And I don't think that that's the case. That should be the case. But that would be a, that would be a case for not forcing them to wear them. You just made a case to not mandate it for kids. Well, I'm going with what the policy states right now. And although I personally feel that they should be wearing their masks because it is more healthy and safety to, safe to do so, I have no authority to be able to tell anybody what to do. So I uphold that because that is what the government has said needs to happen. But I don't think that it is right. I think that we are saying that it's okay for children to get sick and to take it home to their families. That's simply the reality of what's happening in the schools and in the community. I got you. I got you. I thank you again for what you're doing. And and thanks for having uh, a proper, honest, nuanced conversation with me. That's all I want to do. Jessica, I want to get you in in the last minute or uh, and a half or so. Thanks for waiting. You go right ahead. Hi, Jessica. Hi, how are you? Great. Thank you for the phone call. Yeah, so I'm a college teacher, um, and I think that this guy who wrote the email is a bully. Um, I agree. And everything that we are teaching our kids and, like, not to be. Like, he, I don't think that he has the right to try and mandate his classroom. We have ma- upper management that does that for us. Um, mm. I have my own opinion about the masks anyway, just with mental health issues, I think, I teach um, young adults that are in college, so mm-hmm. it's a little bit different. But, like, l- I think little kids, uh, including I have a teenage daughter in high school, if I got that email, I would be really upset. My daughter's taken it upon herself to wear a mask only because they've strongly suggested it at her school. So, basically, if you don't wear your mask, um, you know, you're a bad kid. I, I That's just terrible. It is terrible. Um and I don't think that the masks that they're wearing are actually doing anything. Yeah. Um, uh, and I look, I, I've realized, thank you very much again for the phone call. So we looked at um, Joe Biden's job approval numbers on uh, Gallup. And for younger voters, look, it, it, he doesn't need to be reelected and there is not a presidential election for two and some years. But there's always a ripple effect for the midterm elections. And with every decision that gets made here, they stopped him yesterday on a construction project and said, what do you think of the mask mandate being lifted? And uh, and he kind of said people can do what he wants, but there's potential that they'll appeal. He's way, way down. The younger the voter, the more down he is right now. Let's get some insight on why that is from Jeffrey Jones, who's Gallup senior editor. And he joins us now on Toronto Today. Jeffrey, thanks a lot for making the time. Appreciate it. Good morning. Did this, these numbers even jump out off the page at you, down 21% from January to June of 2021. So we're still in the midst of the pandemic. People are still getting vaccinated to 39%. 60 to 39 is an unbelievable drop. And that's Gen Z, 97 to 2004. Those are very new voters, 25 years old to 29 years old. Yeah, um, he's, you know, definitely, he started off pretty well when he became president, had a bit of a honeymoon period there and pretty much gone down since. Um, He's pretty much right now where Donald Trump was for most of his presidency. And, um, you know, that's not a good approval rating, no matter how you slice it. So 42% in our latest poll, um, and that's down from 56. And he's lost support among pretty much 
every subgroup out there. So, um, yeah, pretty tough situation for him and for the party as well. He's holding uh, numbers as as you just uh, label them as traditionalists. Uh, and those are people those are, you know, people his age, to be honest, born before 1946. And he's not doing badly with with baby boomers, which can be as young um, by that definition as 58 years old. Um, so he's, he's holding a lot of those numbers and just disastrous poll readings for almost everybody younger than that. Yeah, and a big reason for that is older people tend to have a party affiliation. So um, these days, you know, what you think of the president is almost completely determined by your party. Mm -hmm. So if you're a Republican, you think he's doing terrible. If you're a Democrat, you think he's doing great. Um, The younger generations have a lot more independence, so they're not really fixed, you know, in their views of Biden as much. And, And like I said, this is a group that's lost the most support for Biden since he began. They started out pretty positive towards him. And then, you know, as things have happened, you know, last summer we had the surge in COVID and the Afghanistan withdrawal, which was like a key turning point in his presidency. And he hasn't really recovered um, from that. And these are the groups that have fallen away from him. Jeffrey Jones, our guest Gallup, senior editor on uh, Joe Biden's falling poll numbers with younger people. Um, COVID policy. I mentioned that earlier there. You know, I I can make the case that a 70 year old isn't terribly effective of course they they're the ones in that demographic that should be more concerned with their own safety but if they got vaccinated and they're protected and they're in generally not in considerable ill health they can go about their lives it's been harder for younger people hasn't it? it's been harder for 18 year olds college students have had all sorts of regulations placed on them controversial booster mandates uh, from universities for people who'd already recovered from covid um do you think that's factoring into these numbers Um, It could. uh, What we see with COVID and people's attitudes towards the restrictions and vaccinations, it's it's really tied up with party. It's become so politicized. Um, You know, Democrats generally support restrictions. Pretty much all of them are vaccinated. Republicans, um, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of Republicans are vaccinated, but a lot of them are not. And, you know, those are the people who are the most opposed um, to any of these restrictions. So it's Maybe less so age, more so um, partisanship. But I mean, I think I agree. You know, younger people might be more affected by the um, by the restrictions. But I don't know that it really translates into support for Biden that much. When I mention that, um, it's it, it, it there tends to be a correlation when it comes to poll numbers for a president, and and oftentimes that there's just going to be a bit of a, a kick in the pants anyway in midterm elections. Bill Clinton faced that in 1994. Uh, we obviously saw it with Trump to some extent when the Democrats wrestled the House back in 2018. Does it almost always go that way? And and based on COVID and so much controversy about Biden, um, it was there was bound to be a bit of a market correction almost anyway. But Democrats are getting concerned, really, about where where November is going to lead them to. Yeah, I think they have every right to be concerned. Um, Our analysis suggests if a president's approval rating is below 50 percent, which Biden certainly is, uh, his party can expect to lose on average 38 seats in the midterm. So, you know, certainly Democrats would lose control of the House. I mean, that's based on House seats. Um, So they're definitely facing some pretty stiff headwinds. And when we have a situation like now where Democrats control everything as they did in 94 and uh, as they did in uh, 2010 and Republicans did in 2018, that's, you know, there's nowhere to hide. If people are upset, they're going to blame that party. You know, you can't spread the blame around. So, 
you know, it's it's going to be a tough year. It looks like I don't expect his approval rating to improve much um, between now and the election. We just haven't seen that historically. And um, I guess if there's any silver lining for Democrats, they've already lost some of these seats. Yeah, there's a lot of, and I, you know, I looked at it last night. There's a lot of Democrats retiring, a lot of them. And now there's talk about Dianne Feinstein and whether she would run again. She hasn't announced a retirement, but that got controversial last week with what looked like a bit of leaked info about her health and and well-being. Like there's a lot of seats that will be not held by incumbents, regardless of how November goes. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, so we're starting an election where Democrats weren't as high you know, in terms of the number of seats they had in some of these past elections. So, you know, we may not see, you know, something on the order of 94, 2010, when they lost more than 50 seats. But, you know, it's just hard to see how, you know, come, you know, January that Republicans aren't going to be in control of the House and, you know, more than likely the Senate as well. Jeffrey, thanks very much for the time today. I appreciate it. Sure. My pleasure. Jeffrey Jones, Gallup Senior Editor, uh, calling us and uh, giving us some insight on that. It's going to be really, really interesting. Um, I uh, Again, I, there's a lot of people saying on the Democratic side of things, take this L here. You know, blame, you can finger point at the CDC and do not protest this ruling about them. They're, they're ending at some point. So take the L now. People will remember that you wanted to enact this for another four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, and they'll remember and they'll have delayed their vacation and they'll have changed their travel plans and all that stuff. Uh, again, I think yesterday was a great example of people who tweet to be a certain way and people who are a certain way. You saw all the pictures, people on flights celebrating. That's what well, that's not everybody. I got it. Nothing's universal these days, but you might be inclined to tweet. We've got to look out for each other, blah, 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 blah. And in your own mind, you're thinking, good. I don't like the damn mask. I don't want to fly in a plane. It's really hard to crack, crack the egg and, and get to how people really feel about this. Thanks for listening to Toronto Today. You can find us with a live show tomorrow on Thursday, the 21st of April. You can find us on the Radio Player Canada app or go to 640toronto.com. Please feel free to spread the news. Subscribe to this podcast and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks again.